Dear listeners, Agnes here. I had a little bit of mic trouble recording this episode, so I sound like I'm calling from a payphone in Siberia. Uh, we've since sorted it out, but in the meantime, I hope you'll be a little forgiving. All right, enjoy. Welcome to Two Queers, Four Questions. I'm Ezra Furman. I'm Agnes Berinsky. And we're two trans-Jewish artists creating our own four questions for each Jewish holiday to uncover their countercultural spirit. Here we are. Hi, Ezra. Hi, Agnes. Happy new podcast. We're talking today about the holiday known as Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish New Year, which always comes in the fall, the autumn. So we've we've prepared four questions. And it's sort of convenient because this holiday has four names. So we've sort of tied each question to each of the four names of this holiday. The four names of Rosh Hashanah are, are... Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Yom Tru'ah, the day of the blast. <laughs> the day of the trumpet call, the shofar blow. Uh, the third name is Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembering. And the fourth is Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. And that's we're, we're trying to call four questions out of these four names, four themes. And starting with Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, well, the question we have paired with it is, why do we have a Jewish calendar? Why do we have a Jewish calendar? I mean, I I feel like there's something in the seed of this whole project that you articulated quite beautifully about why you feel that there's something profound and countercultural about the Jewish calendar. Yes. In a way, it's the theme, the, the idea of this whole podcast is that Judaism kind of runs as this underground river underneath mainstream society with like a separate system, a separate set of values and perhaps a countercultural critique of mainstream society, much in the way that the Jewish calendar runs alongside the uh, Gregorian calendar. It's sort of my little secret calendar that um, ties me into this world of, uh, of, values of spirituality of like uh, just ancient flavors and culture that um i just believe that it ha- it it carries some countercultural potential it's almost like what's a i feel like i don't even know this term it's like a polyrhythmic it's like a different rhythm yeah the larger culture is in four four and this one's in like nine eight i just think well it's also that why does it need to have a beginning even though we're moving in a circle and a cycle, and we often talk about these things in terms of cycles, there's a point where sort of imagining a simultaneous vector and a circle. If it were a cycle, an undefined cycle, there would just be sort of endless repetition. But there's a, this idea of a point of beginning feels like a break. Well, importantly, the Jewish New Year is inextricably connected to the Day of Atonement, which always happens 10 days later. 
and and so starting the new calendar year is not just a formal re-upping of the date but it's a moral reckoning it's 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 sometimes been pointed out that like the gregorian calendar year is celebrated with like big parties and people getting drunk and and this one the jewish new year is so different in tone i mean there is some there is like i feel like there's a undercurrent of celebration in it but it's mostly like this is so intense why are you even alive right now do you deserve another year like what have you done this year be a better person right now and i love it it's i love the the stubbornly morally obsessed juxtaposition of that with uh December 31st. But at the same time, there's all those other, I feel like that also brings in those other names for this holiday that brings in things like remembrance and blasts and judgment. But if if we dwell on this, this little seed of Earth Day, we think about the sweetness of honey and apples and that whole vibe, it feels already like there's sort of an invitation to some kind of paradox or, or doubleness of holding both that and this intensity that you're talking about. Yeah, another dissonance is the weird fact that in the Jewish calendar, the months are numbered, but this month that begins the new year is not the first month. I don't even, this is so confusing, I don't almost don't know how to say it, but the first month is in the springtime, and this is the seventh month. I guess the other thing that jumped into my mind when you were saying that is that it's kind of a relief that month number one is not the beginning of all things. Because when I think about my own life, like my actual birthday, the day I was born and became a physical body in the world, I feel like I've had so many rebirths since then. Like I've, there's a part of me that's just like, what do I even do with the first several decades of my life before I came out as trans, for instance? Like, is that, what is that? Is that Tishrei through the first seven months or whatever? Or, and so it's kind of a gift actually to get, a beginning moment that's kind of late, you know? Yeah. The year doesn't begin until like six months have passed. It's like a terrifically bountiful and generous stutter. Like time just sort of stutters a little bit in this gorgeous way. Yeah. And also has, it gives you multiple moments to do that thing where you're like, Oh, I'm, I could start over right now. I could change now. Which I guess brings to the other half of that idea of a Jewish calendar, because it would be one thing if we all just sort of carried that impulse in ourselves. And on, you know, February 19th, I would wake up one morning and say, like, I decide today is going to be the beginning of the year. Like, is it important that we all have the same day? And I wonder if that's tied to the city of a set of collective values that are that were. Yeah, I think I, I do think it's essential that it's done at the same time. Really, I, I mean, actually, because. The calendar creates a virtual community. I think I think doing things at the same time and having the the Sabbath be the same day for everyone all over the world allows diaspora to still be a community. I, I, yeah, it's a marvelous thing to me to um, I guess to have peoplehood and nationhood not based on the land where you live and the land where you belong, but to have it be conceptual um 
I love and that. And that makes it very, very durable. I love that. And that feels quite radical, actually, to constitute nation, but not through blood, not through place, not even through language, but through time. I think it's easy to forget that because we get take for granted so much that this is how religion works, that there are these holidays. But it's actually kind of incredible. Yeah, and it's not... It's not the most traditional version of what a tribe is. You know, in some way, queer people are part of a conceptual virtual community also. I mean, I just like, it feels like I have these two virtual communities. They're sort of like secret societies scattered all over the world. And um, I could run into a queer person or a Jewish person, in all kinds of places, and we would have certain things that we feel like in fellowship about. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to stretch that too far. It's not like I'm, I'd be best buds with any, uh, trans person ever met or anything. What does shofar do? Now we know on a basic level, a shofar is a, a horn made of a ram, a ram's horn that you press your lips to and blow through, and it makes a iconic, majestic sound. Or a very defensive um, <laughs> doing it. I have done some pretty weak ass shofar blowing in my life, but some, you know, sometimes, sometimes you get it right. And actually, I don't think there's any qualitative. <laughs> There's no value judgment on how it sounds coming out. Um, but this ritual of blowing the shofar is the only thing in the Bible that is mentioned about this day. It's not even mentioned that it is the new year. In the Bible, it's not conceptualized as the new year. It's just Yom Truah, the day you blow the shofar. And it's 10 days before the Day of Atonement, which is discussed a little more extensively. It occurs to me that the image of just the force of breath that's required to make a shofar blow, where you like pump your diaphragm and send breath through your pursed lips into this horn is kind of a profound image. I mean, I was, I, I told you I was, I've been going to these Chabad services, which I'm not sure if I'm going to continue to go to, but this last Chabad, I read a section of the Tanya with my new friend, Ruvain and it talks about how we each have two souls in us, an animal soul and a divine soul. And the proof that they give for the idea that there's a divine soul in us is that God breathed into Adam. And they really talk about what it means to move breath from the deepest part of yourself into another being. That like this 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 air that's in your body moves into this other body, Adam, and that's the that's the divine soul. I feel like there's something kind of incredible about taking our ruach, our spirit, our soul and turning it into something that everyone can hear. It's almost like your spirit becomes audible to all in this moment. I heard, I heard about this conversation in the Talmud where they're talking about what can a shofar, what makes a shofar okay to use? Can you use anything? Can you use like a tube? If you don't have the ram's horn, could you use something that's actually wider at the mouth end and blow through the thinner end? And they said, well, no, you can't do that because of this verse from Psalms. Uh, which means from the narrow place, I 
I cried out and God answered me from a a wide expanse or in in a wide expanse. I I, I kind of love it. I kind of love it. Um, from a place of constriction to a place of more freedom from thin to wide. Uh, I guess there's a hum a human the human element is is really important so does this mean that shofar is always a, like a cry karatiya that i like a cry of distress towards god is that what we think the sound of the shofar is well it's, it's often it's often compared to or said to be symbolizing or reminding us of the cry of the oppressed or the cry of somebody in pain it is like a cry of pain. Um, I think there's something about the cry of pain that everywhere in Judaism, it's like a cry of pain is a signal of hope because an old friend of my parents often says, you don't ask, you don't get at the same time. It is, it it's maybe it's like simplest meaning of blowing that horn is like, that's who you blow. A horn is blown when a, when a sovereign is, a sovereign is crowned. That this is the shofar ceremony is like crowning God sovereign, which is its own can of worms. Because why do we? Why? What does God need from us that we need to crown God sovereign? To me, I this is like a fundamental thing for me from a young from 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 when I got into Judaism as a teenager for the first time that felt like more on my own terms, trying to take it in as an adult. I was like, it seems like it really matters that God is sovereign. And so any human sovereign is not there's their, their authority is not absolute. You don't need to be afraid of anyone. If you just fear God, a very, liberating a very anti-authoritarian thing to me as a teenager and and now um there's something that just like strikes strikes one as conservative to talk about crowning the king and respecting authority in this uh ritually enshrined way but it seems to not be at all because this this sovereign is not any person. It's not any human system. It's beyond everything. And uh, it invalidates our <laughs> fealty to any earthly authority. And I, I find it transformative and power-giving. Um, also, if God, if all of us are in God's image and God is in all of us and in all of God's creation, and it's a sort of crowning of creation, of life, as a sovereign value, which feels not alien to a, a Jewish vision of the world. You mean like like we've got, we've all got a bit of that sovereignty in us. Like it, it gives us all authority in our very being. Right, the difference between crowning Pete Buttigieg sovereign and crowning God sovereign is that we're not all Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> I think 
You don't think we all have a spark of people to judge in us? I don't think so. I think mine died years and years ago. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, <laughs> no shade on Pete, I guess. Maybe a what shade. happened to this um, queer community wherever you go thing? I guess it's... Um, <laughs> it died on the sword of the Democratic Party. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also the, to me a, a a Rosh Hashanah thing, a shofar thing that really matters to me is that the crowning this sound, the shofar sound, crowning God Queen of all, is the same sound as is as, as the cry of suffering, the cry of the oppressed, um, the the sovereignty of God means that we have to listen to the voice of someone who is suffering. Um, I think it's very powerful that those are joined together in the same ritual. Um, the, the idea that you could hear your ethical imperative to be loyal to God anytime you hear the voice of a suffering person or see that someone's in pain that that could be a reminder of like, I'm a servant of the queen. I've got a job to do right now. That's what I hear in the, in the shofar. I really love that. And I feel like you just totally made me ditch my framework for all this, which was like, Oh, here are different alternate images for what the shofar could mean. And by saying that they're the same framework, we're just saying that they have a causal or a meaningful relationship, because of course, I mean, I, as you know, I'm kind of, I, I'm kind of obsessed with this question of anger too, and what we do with anger. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's another sound that I hear when I hear the shofar. And I, I mean, and God gets angry a lot in Hanah, but I feel like there's something mm-hmm. that's sort of excluded from what we talk about in the framework of repentance is anger. I mean, I've been, I, I've been reading this Sarah Shulman's book about ACT UP, which the whole foundation, I think, of that organization and of what brought people together was this shared anger. And so many people, when they talk about going to their first ACT UP meeting, talk about how how clarifying and inspiring it was to see people who are articulate about things that filled them with rage. And I, I think that there are so many, there have been moments in my life when I think I was given permission to feel anger that I didn't give myself. And those moments were actually quite profound. When somebody said, this thing happened, then it's okay for you to feel upset about it. Or like you don't have to pretend that this didn't hurt you. I think we want to. It's good not to to dwell in anger and to to land there as the end, but I think it's a really important beginning. So I sort of want to throw that into the mix too. Of, of the, I agree. Of yeah, and anger is it. It seems like really feared. It seems like rabbinically, the the rabbis are just like really not about anger they they want to teach against anger and they see it as so destructive it seems i don't know it's not i mean maybe i'm missing whole um worlds of anger in the talmud or something but it it seems like very often like tone that down you know um which i relate to i relate to the need to control anger and the seeing the destruction it can cause but then i do think well, obviously, it's a it's a human reality. Anger. It also seems like a really essential human tool. Um, 
for some situations. And I mean, the Bible, as you said, the Bible's full of anger. The Psalm, my favorite book of the Bible is Psalms. Um, the Psalms get incredibly angry, um, frighteningly, violently angry. Um, and, you know, there's this Psalm, um, I forget the number, but it's traditional Jews say it at the beginning of the Birkat HaMazon, the prayer after eating, the blessing after a meal. They say this violently angry psalm that ends with um, hap um, something like, happy is the one who breaks your enemy's infant's skulls on the rocks. Seems like most liberal Jews really like skip out on, on saying that. Um, but and and with other, there's also some other angry moments like in the Passover Seder that um, liberal Jews have often shied away from. I have heard people also say though, like um, you might not feel this anger, you might not personally relate to it, but it you would do well to remember that this is how it can feel. This is how some people feel right now because of the uh, brutal cruelties that have been inflicted upon them. It's, it's like a feeling you don't want to pretend doesn't exist. So um, it's Roland Rosh Hashanah. I don't know. Maybe if they were writing the Rosh Hashanah liturgy today, it might be I don't know. I was going to say it might be more present, but hard to know. I mean, I'll bring it back to my favorite Rav Sarah Shulman again, that she, in Conflict is Not Abuse, she talks about what, um, I think she would agree that dashing infants heads against the rocks is abuse. But I think that in her framework of conflict, when you have intense emotion, the things to do are to delay acting on it immediately and to bring it to a collective space where you can share it with other people. And so I think that that maybe to come back to this idea of a calendar as, a, as constituting a people that if we can honor anger by bringing it into shared space and find other people who can share in that emotion with us, then we're able to transform it into something that can be used in a healthy way and not in a destructive way. Yeah. Well, I think the best thing that anger does is something similar to what a shofar can do, which is to alarm us and sort of be a wake-up call, like like feel how intense this feels emotionally. Doesn't that make you want to change something about the world? The Day of Remembrance, Yom HaZikaron. What are we remembering? We could be we could, I feel like we could swap in any of the things we've talked about so far. We're remembering our peoplehood. We're remembering God's sovereignty. We're remembering to pay attention to the cry of the oppressed. But what, like, what is, how is this not just a duplication of what we talked about before? What is it that we're remembering and who is remembering? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not only us remembering, it's, it's also a hope that we are being remembered by God to be saved, to be redeemed. 
Um, there's a quality of Rosh Hashanah that is like, this is the day that the plan for the year is set by God. And that's kind of why it's a, this day of moral reckoning and repentance. You're like, oh, wait, oh, this is, our, you're, you're making the plan now? Okay, I'm going to be better. Don't make it bad for me. Please remember our special relationship. I don't know. It's, it's really all over Jewish liturgy. Like, please remember us. And like, we have to remind God that God is um, supposed to be merciful um, and supposed to be supposed to have a covenant with us and uh, not completely destroy us, even though we've failed. Uh <laughs> It's not obvious that it would be the act of remembering that, that that that's phrased in. I think it puts particular focus on the continuity of a relationship. Well, especially when there's so much experiential discontinuity in any relationship, whether that's between us and God, you know, you may feel a certain way about God one morning and feel differently the next morning. And God may feel differently about us um, mm-hmm. on different days. I mean, it's, it's, when you were saying that it's setting a plan for the year, like I'm thinking about all these city councils that are coming out with budgets for the coming year or mayor's offices. And it's a big deal what gets approved in the budget because it sets the plan and the possibility for the whole year ahead. And I, it's, you know, there were so many last summer there were so many promises made by politicians about rethinking how policing works and we're seeing over and over again these budgets at least in new york and la coming out that are increasing police budgets and i think that there's it's sort of like you remember god what happened last summer when we talked about changing the plan and now all of a sudden you're making the plan for the year so it's like how do you it's a moment where we're taking in the whole year in one unit and what are the moments from the last year we want to foreground? What are the sort of patterns that we want to establish from moments of reckoning in the past year? So whether we're remembering those moments, remembering the values we committed ourselves to, or, or reminding God as mayor, as city council of the promises mm. that were made, that feels right to me that there has to be some reminding going on because a lot happens. A lot happens in a year. A lot of promises get made. Yeah. The weird thing is that there's so much forgetting that we're asking for also. I mean, like, the coming Day of Atonement is like, please just forget that we did those things wrong. Atone, cover them up or erase them. Um, And it's like, it takes, like, to emphasize remembering, even despite that, is like a lot of... um, chutzpah no it's like it really it's like a lot of faith in like if you remember the root of this relationship you will remember to protect us um i mean it's it, i like that, that it feels like the distinction between remembering certain actions or certain moments and remembering relationships it's like when at the beginning of exodus when a new pharaoh takes over egypt you know comes to power in egypt and who didn't know joseph it's it's not like yeah. we didn't know about X, Y, or Z event or moment or happening. It's just that this relationship that was so central has been forgotten. 
Yeah, and I think this stuff with thinking of having a relationship with God that has continuity and, and promises, it's also like importantly centers relationships in general. And it's it's like a kind of theater where we practice relationships um, and it's practice for human relationships. It's not even practice. It's like, it's like, this is how people in loving relationship treat each other. And this is how we treat each other after we've broken a promise. This is how we get back together. This is how we make peace. Um, even though we've failed each other. It feels also like it's edging into this conversation of the role of the past and trauma and being able to build towards a different future where you can't you know, even to think about more broadly about all the fights that are happening in school or it's now about what history to teach and how to teach history. Um, and I just wonder if it's possible to, the question is, is it possible to build a just future? Is it possible to do things differently if we're not, not acknowledging what happened? You know, there's, it, it sort of is almost like the idea of like, let's forgive and forget um, doesn't work. Yeah. Remembering, naming what happened matters a lot. I mean, maybe, maybe this is our segue to question number four. What do we do with guilt? And this is paired with the name of Rosh Hashanah, which is Yom Hadin, the, the Day of Judgment. Very intense. There's stuff in the liturgy, it's like all the angels are trembling, and they're saying, the day of judgment is here. It's like fear and awe. I think this is the, the days of awe. The awe part of the days of awe. Speaking for myself, I think guilt and feeling judged has often been a bad, a toxic thing in my life that I, that I like don't need to feel more of. Or maybe I want to feel in a different way than I've been made to feel it. Um, How does it feel? How does it move through you? I'm asking because I, I never do anything wrong, so I've never felt guilty in my life. So, yeah, so I know that like, about you. Uh, there's a few axes that it runs on. There is, there is like, sometimes I'm told that something I do is wrong, that I kind of know is not wrong. But I'm like, I'm made to doubt myself about it. And I'm like, maybe it is wrong. Maybe it is wrong. Um, to have a homosexual relationship or something like that, to be queer. It says it in the Bible. There's the prohibition against it. Um, maybe I need to, like, don't follow my internal compass of, like, that's okay, but um, accept this value system that says it's wrong and feel bad about it and stop. And um, that's, like, sort of level one. Well, I don't know. that That... That kind of simple dissonance has like done damage to me in my life, I think. Um, 
But then there's another thing where I do think I have done something wrong. I hurt someone's feelings. I, I, um, I don't know, hoarded wealth, passed up opportunities to do good, um, was mean to people in a very actually harmful way. And guilt about that has sometimes for me taken the form of like, I'm just in it, in this feeling of like, I'm the worst. I'm just the worst. And I like can't move. It doesn't, I can't do anything about it because I'm just feeling these feelings that like paralyze me with negativity. They don't point the way to like, this is how I'm going to do better. I just wallow. At which point enter that beautiful ingenue mercy who comes in and restores the possibility of motion. Is that it? Who pulls you out of the, the wallowing? Is that how it works? Or is Well, I, to me, the thing, there is like this joyful realization that like, oh, I did something wrong and it's just something I did. It's not something about me. I can just do something different. Right now, I can um, repair this. Just like sometimes, and often this is spurred by the Jewish idea of tshuva, of, of repentance, is like there are, just start, just start doing better. And for me, it's why I feel so strange sometimes about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I'm like, all I need is a sh- is a push. This feeling of like, oh my God, what have I done? It's it's hard sometimes for that to translate into positive energy to improve or to do something useful, helpful, rep- reparative, repairing. It's making me think about. This is a bit of a digression, but I. There's that anthropologist David Graeber who talks about debt and how debt, rather than being something bad, has historically been the thing that holds societies together. You know, like in a in a in a monetary economy, you fix my air conditioning unit and I give you such and such amount of money. Yeah, monthly. This is I, I don't know if anybody. You got to take better care of it, Agnes. <laughs> I'm not going to come over and fix it anymore. Well, you're awfully modest about your air conditioner fixing ability. I don't think people know this about you, Ezra, that you really are a good <laughs> HVAC. Um, in fact, every month it's just trying to stump you to see whether you're going to fix it. <laughs> but every month. But the thing is, when I pay you to fix the air conditioner, it sort of severs the relationship between us. It's like, we're good. We're even. We've squared it away. There's nothing to be mm-hmm. done. Whereas, like, I think in a, in a gift economy or in a culture where some, you are always like the giving of lavish gifts, the performing of like great services for each other. And this feeling of indebtedness is not, which I think we often in the sort of capitalist framework we live in feel as like a squeamish, terrible thing is actually a connection between you and this person that like you're going to then perform from service for somebody else who's going to find you into this larger network of people or, or, you know, like who knows at some point online, you'll do something in return for that person. So I think that there's something about, guilt and the ability to forgive ourselves and each other and the ability of God to forgive us that is 
allowing us to feel that moment of relationship. Like I need, mm. I, I, I have incurred debt to you or to God or to the earth or whatever. And instead of making it as simple, like, okay, write a check and you'll square it away. It's, there's this relational thing that happens that ties us further into each other. Yeah. This project of, of being, being people. It's not one and done. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like continual back and forth. <sighs> yeah. It's very interesting. So, so would you say, I mean, so, so justice and mercy are these two oft highlighted, like things about God in the Jewish tradition. God has this strict, just side. That's like, this is what happened. This is, it was wrong. This is the appropriate punishment. And then there's mercy, which is like, maybe we don't have to stick to the exact letter of the law. Maybe there can be forgiveness. Maybe. So are are you kind of mapping it onto that? Like justice would be like, I fix your air conditioner. You owe me uh, $37 and those are the rules. And then mercy is like a different area where it's like, yeah, gifts, um, relationship that doesn't get like settled and then ended. I mean, I, I think that's right. I think I'm feeling, I'm distracted because I'm feeling waves of guilt about feeling like I've mangled David Graeber's ideas. Um, but really, <laughs> this is my, this is my oral Torah of like commentary on David Graeber. I, it does feel like justice is about bright lines and right distinctions and about clean reparations. And it mm-hmm. feels like mercy is this territory that is, dare I say, non-binary somehow that, that, that says like, Oh, there's actually a force that can cross that line of what is strictly right and what's strictly wrong that in, you know, obviously it's, you can't just sort of snap your fingers and make something go away. There's, there's, I guess I'm saying that mercy, the practice of mercy secures and ensures relationship that hmm. a merciful God has a relationship with the people to whom she is merciful and a merciful human has a relationship with the person to whom they are merciful. There's something about Mm -hmm. mercy that gets things moving in a way that the justice is the one and done bright line, clean distinction. Um, Put it on your credit card and pay it off that very month. Hmm. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. It like, it feels like there's, there's different situations where you want to invoke the justice framework or the, or the mercy framework. Yeah, I do. I do want both. I just think that you don't want to go all mercy because it is a way to be like, well, I murdered your family, but let's try to move forward and and get along. And it's like, no, that's when you invoke justice. That's when you, you know, it's someone I studied um, and actually who came into class when I was in college. I took took a couple of ethics courses in the philosophy department when I was a bright-eyed undergraduate. And um, 
T.M. Scanlon came in, he's an ethicist. His whole thing was like free will. Like it probably doesn't really exist, so you can't really punish each other just to punish, just for that sense of satisfaction of punishment. Rather, what blame is is you revise a relationship based on what's happened. Something has happened, and your relationship is now changed. So it's like maybe there's this world where I I was not I was not on board actually with this idea. Principally because I was like, free will exists. I don't know why you think it doesn't. It feels like it does. I don't know. <laughs> um, there's, there's, I don't want to get into that whole conversation, obviously. But um, that is an interesting thing. Like, it's like, well, like we used to walk side by side in the park. But then last time you like tripped me and ran away. And like, now we can't walk side by side in the park anymore and that's that's not a punishment that's just like our new relationship based on what you did right right i guess i've been meaning to ask you about that whether that was still you were still thinking about that moment but uh, i like that because it well (laughs) it feels it feels like it went over my head and then i caught up (laughs) this is where we are this is where we are what do we say about (laughs) we're not in the same calendar (laughs) No, I think that I think that um, I like that because it's real. Like it feels like it's based in the reality of being a person, and I think that that's to come back to that image of the angels trembling. Like we can't go all justice, we can't go all mercy. We have to live in this suspension where both are a dynamic that has to be worked out in this relationship. Right. I think there's something about Rosh Hashanah that is like what we owe to each other, what we owe to God, what God owes to us is not actually decided. It's not like it's not worked out and finished. We have to keep coming back and saying, hey, let's start over. Or like, let's, what can we do even despite your failures, my failures? Um, It's like you can't just look at the balance sheet of the relationship and say like, well, that's where we are. You have to show up, listen, speak say hello, check in, be in relationship. It's in motion. It's not static. It's all in motion. Always in motion. I mean, like, we're going to get into, on the, when we talk about Yom Kippur, we're going we're gonna to talk about this stuff more. Um, judgment, guilt, relationship, balance sheets. But I guess for now we leave it suspended in the it's a beginning. It's a place to begin. Well, yeah, and the the way that it's left at the end of Rosh Hashanah is names are written in the book of life or the book of death, but they're not sealed yet. They could still be erased from one and put into the other. So whenever you're listening to this, dear listeners, I hope you have a happy and sweet new year, much, much sweeter than the past one. I hope you find the right path forward with all your relationships. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.